Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals, CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 12th and Wednesday, October 18th. CME Palooza. It's free, it's fun, and it's just plain fantastic. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education encourages the inclusion of patient perspectives within continuing medical education activities. And patient cases are a great way to meet this recommendation. We talked about patient cases in an earlier episode of Right Medicine with Scott Cober. Today, we're joined by Alison Arman, a content and education director specialising in creating interactive patient cases. She shares how targeted patient cases provide ways for clinicians to experience a real-life scenario, but allow them to practice their skills in a consequence-free environment address patient needs, and identify gaps in their knowledge and skills. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Let's get learning. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and I'm here today with Alison Arman, who has extensive experience in developing patient cases and a decade of working as a hospital pharmacist. Welcome, Alison. Thank you, Alex. Nice to be here. It's good to see you. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Yeah, certainly. I'm a clinical pharmacist by background. I spent about 10 years in the hospital working on various floors, kind of learning the ins and outs of real clinical medicine. Got tired of shift work and being on call and was lucky enough to get a job in CME working on uh, patient patient cases. Can I just dig in a little bit there about that phrase, lucky enough to get a job in CME? How did you make that shift from pharmacy into continuing medical education? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Alex. And the answer is I never gave up. So in school, I always wanted to go into kind of non-traditional pharmacy, as they call it. So medical writing or pharma. After graduation, I did a drug information residency, but ended up going into hospital just based on the job market. Throughout my 10 years at the hospital, I took every opportunity I could to do medical writing. So whether that be the newsletter for the pharmacy or offering to review manuscripts, anything I could do to kind of keep my foot in the door so that when it came around to it, I did have 10 years of uh, small jobs doing medical writing, which I think helped me eventually get a full-time job in CME. So something drew you to writing. And you were tenacious. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to sum it up. I didn't give up. 
You didn't give up. And so what drew you to patient cases? You know, let's just start actually, first of all, what are patient cases? What do you mean when you're talking about patient cases? Yeah, so patient cases are really a way for a clinician to practice the skills that they're learning either in their courses or through publications or guidelines. Practice that in a consequence-free environment so that when a patient comes in front of them, they've seen someone with this disease state and have a little bit more kind of real-life experience, even though it's in a case that's fictional rather than just reading about a topic and then directly trying to apply it to a real person. What do you mean by a consequence-free environment? Yeah, that's a term we like because in a patient case, you know, you can make a wrong decision. You can prescribe something you shouldn't. You should order a test that's not needed. And you can learn from that rather than the patient having to feel the effects of whatever that decision was, be it financial or medical. You can try that out and kind of see from your mistakes in a place where you're not hurting a patient. And when you say try that out, how does that work in practice? Is that, where are they trying that out? Yeah, so I can speak to our patient cases and our patient cases were kind of set up like an electronic medical record. So imagine if you can, if you were ordering something in a hospital, if you're the clinician, In our system, you would order a medication and the medical writer would have given feedback on whether or not that's a good medicine for that patient case that's been presented for you. Or you would diagnose the patient by typing in the diagnosis you think is probable based on their history of present illness, their lab work, their chief complaint. And the medical writer would have written the feedback that the clinician will receive if that's an appropriate diagnosis, if that's not quite the correct diagnosis, but we see why you might think that to kind of help tease out the nuances in getting to the correct diagnosis. So we're talking about an online format here where the learner is typing in responses. Is that correct? Yeah, this is a dynamic kind of case where you can go in and select a multitude of options and kind of treat the patient or work up the patient as you would if you were in a true clinical setting. And you're also describing, you know, the medical writer is creating a lot of information in order to provide that feedback to the decisions that the learner is making, the choices that the learner is is making. Do you have or do you recommend a framework or a model for approaching how to develop patient cases. So if somebody's starting from scratch and they're tasked with creating a case, how do they start? Yeah, so that's another great question. And that would say, I would say one of the things that was great about working in the hospital is you kind of get used to seeing all sorts of different disease states. And as as a pharmacist by background, you're kind of used to doing some research to get up to speed. And so that's what I would do. So if I was given a topic that I was not familiar with, or if I was given a rare disease that I needed to write a patient case for, I would kind of start at the beginning. I would kind of go to that advocacy website, try to learn some background on the disease. If there were guidelines, I would absolutely read the guidelines. I would kind of see what maybe the past 12 months of literature was, what sort of new medications, what sort of things are being discussed about this disease state. So I'd really spend a couple hours kind of trying to do some research about the disease state. Because if you don't do that background first, you can't really play catch up and get a good case out of it. 
So you're looking at a lot of different places for what kind of information, just clinical information or other kinds of of information to help build up the case? I would say there's two main sort of things I'm looking for. I'm looking for clinical or disease state information. So I need to know what the workup looks for this, I, looks like. I need to know what things are going to be on the differential. I need to know what sort of medications or non-medications are something this patient should be offered. But I also need to know, and it's critical to understand the patient voice of it too, right? So that's where patient advocacy websites can come in, or there's lots of patient podcasts for patients who have specific diseases where you can really hear how it affects the patient and kind of pick up the nuances that you're not going to get from reading the guidelines or the disease state education. As important as that is, those two things kind of need to come together to make a case really stick well. And so how would you blend? Well, another question there, actually, before I get to, I was going to ask you how you blend that patient voice into the clinical information. But I think I want to ask first, how do you know what to listen for or what to look for in patient voice? Yeah, so I can give a, a specific example. I, I did some cases on pulmonary hypertension, which was just not a disease state I had done much work in. And there's actually a podcast out there, three to patient, patients giving their perspective on what it's like to live with pulmonary hypertension. You know, and I think not only does listening to those teach you more state, but it also teaches you how we as learners get hooked to the patient voice, right? We want to learn about something when the narrative or the person draws us in. And so I think learning to patients talk about their disease state can teach you both the art of making it interesting, as well as what living with that disease state is really like. I think that's great advice, because I think one thing that a lot of writers struggle with is how to kind of balance the clinical data with the lived experience of, you know, having a particular disease or or condition. Um, so actually listening, not just reading about patient voice, but listening to patient voice uh, sounds like really good advice. It's a kind of visceral kind of, of learning almost. So we're talking about approaching a patient case and you're talking about kind of casting out a wide net to get that clinical information, to listen to the nuances of the lived experience of a particular disease or condition. Are there different styles of writing that writers need to use in developing patient cases, you know, styles that might be different from other deliverables in in continuing medical education or continuing education more generally? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the good news is that you still will, in some aspects of a patient case, maybe need to go back to your old standbys of writing based on certain sorts of formats that we're used to writing about. But there are also new opportunities to write in a more clinical way. So if you've worked in hospital, you know what a medical record looks like. You know that words are not defined at first use. There's a lot of shorthand. The grammar's not great. It's not perfect, right? And if you haven't worked in a hospital, you at least probably have been to a doctor and you have access to your medical records. So I've told people, you know, you can just go in and see what the doctor wrote about, you know, if you're brave. And that can kind of show you what that sort of phrasing looks like. So you have kind of the traditional writing, which is, you know, when you're educating on the disease state. 
And then you have this sort of writing when it's the background. So writing about the history of present illness, writing about the chief complaint, writing the physical exam, all these things that are important when you see a patient. And then the third type of writing that you have is the script. So asking the patient, which I find most writers are very good about coming up with what to ask the patient, because we can look that up. We can say, what should you ask a patient who might have XYZ? The harder part I've found is writing the answer, because it's harder to figure out how a patient would respond or to get it right clinically, but to miss the nuance of how would they deliver that? Would they be sad? You know, what is the phrasing there? Because it may not be so robotic as the clinical answer. And what do you find are the best resources for accessing that kind of nuance and information? Yeah, I think I would go back to sort of podcasts or videos. So so not reading it, seeing it in action. And then as you're writing a script, kind of acting it out yourself or reading it aloud and, and saying like, does my answer make sense? You know, if a patient has been diagnosed with cancer at an appointment, how will they be answering questions, you know, versus a patient was diagnosed with cancer 18 months ago and they're coming back for a follow-up? That's the same patient, right? But the way that they phrase their answers, the way that they appear if your case has video is going to be very different. So those sort of nuances are kind of important and I think are best learned through viewing or listening. And how about faculty as a source for that kind of information? Do you find that faculty are able to share those kinds of of nuances or are they more likely to get, you know, straight to the clinical meat, as it were? Yeah, I would say most faculty are definitely kind of, they'll tell you, these are the questions I would ask. You will get faculty who are really invested in asking patients and really digging deeper. But I would say in general, I'm usually handed, these are the five to 10 questions I would ask. And then I kind of have to work backwards because oftentimes when you're working with a KOL, you have such a limited amount of time. So mm-hmm. if I think I'm going to be able to figure something out, I don't want to spend my time asking the clinician that. So usually for me, what works best is what are the five questions you would ask? And then maybe kind of hitting the highlights of how I think a patient would answer those. And then kind of moving on to a place where maybe I would need that KOL insight a little bit more. And uh, for listeners, KOL, knowledge, opinion, uh, leader, we'll make sure to put that in the, in the show notes just so that you have that, that resource um, or that um, full explanation. This is something that's not just peculiar to medicine, is it? Using acronyms uh, when we kind of move into the medical writing world, we're just as invested in that as as clinicians are. Hello, Write Medicine listener. Are you ready to level up your needs assessment writing strategy? If you're a writer, perhaps you've heard that writing needs assessments is a great way to break into CME, but you've never seen an example of a needs assessment because they're often proprietary and you don't know where to start. Well, Next Level Needs Assessments has you covered. In this six-week program, you'll learn how to write lean, agile needs assessments with the help of deliberate practice, peer-to-peer discussion, and expert feedback. You'll learn how to identify clinical practice gaps, craft actionable learning objectives, describe anticipated learning outcomes and behaviour changes, and draft a needs assessment based on course materials. At the end of the course, you'll have a needs assessment for your portfolio. 
The fall 2022 cohort of students called this programme the best medical writing course they'd taken. They loved the interactivity and feedback. They used the sample needs assessment they created to win business and said the programme exceeded their expectations. You'll get access to quality course materials, weekly live online discussion with me and your peers, a course-specific needs assessment toolkit with foundational materials and templates, and written and verbal feedback from me. The programme's open for enrolment with an early bird discount that expires on January the 27th. There's a link in the show notes with more information. So when we're thinking about, I want to go back to the question of approaching a patient case, you know, from from scratch. And you talked about resources that you like to look at and um, certain elements that you like to start thinking about, the clinical piece, the patient voice. What determines the shape of a patient case in the online context that you're describing, a kind of simulated world, as it were? Yeah, so it it kind of mirrors sort of the background that I would do. And when I then spend my time talking to the key opinion leader or doing my research, I kind of have an outline of the things I need to know. So I start with kind of what got us to here. What has happened to the patient in the past 10 years that's pertinent to them being here? And that's both their family social history, their medical history, and then kind of go into the today. So the chief complaint. So the past 10 years, let's distill that down to a couple paragraphs. And then let's say one sentence, why are they here today? And then in the system that I worked in, the next thing that would happen would be ordering tests. So then I would kind of work through all the different tests that I would want to include in my case. And one thing that I would point out out about the patient cases I worked on is we had the ability to author or to instruct clinicians not only on appropriate choices, but also incorrect choices, which is a really great way to learn. Because we're not just offering the right choices, we're offering things that aren't right, but may look right or are just totally wrong. And then after the test section, we'd go into the medication. So this is where kind of maybe top 20 or 50 potential medications, depending on the disease state, looking into the research that supports the use of those or supports not using those. And then kind of summing that up into like a little, you know, paragraph package for the clinician to kind of read about whether or not that the reason why that was a good choice. We would follow that then with diagnosis, which I spoke a little bit about the differential and seeing, you know, which diagnoses are are potentially something that should be on the radar for the clinician for this patient. And then within our system, we would have what we call non-medication orders. So there are things outside of medications and tests, right? Nutrition, rehab, lifestyle changes, meditation. These are all sorts of things that clinicians should be aware of and patients are asking about. So we do be sure to include that in our cases. And then the other thing, as I mentioned, our patient cases have a patient interview. So depending on the disease that we're covering, that patient interview may come up front or it may come after the fact because maybe we're educating on what to ask the patient 
Or maybe it's more important to say how to de- deliver that me- that information and what do you tell the patient after you've gotten their results or after you've decided to start them on a medication. So I had it really nice that I had the flexibility to put that patient case wherever you wanted within the case. But that's another thing to think about is that a patient interaction with a physician doesn't happen usually just once. You know, when you go into the office, you talk to the, the doctor, you guys make some decision, and then you talk again. So as many times as you can kind of weave that patient voice in there, it makes the learning stick. And it's true to the reality of what patients experience when they go in to see a clinician. There's so much in there, Alison, that I want to dig into. Thank you for sharing all of that. And first of all, thank you for correcting me. Key opinion leader, not knowledge opinion leader. You started off by saying that you're really thinking about this patient case as a whole person. And so you're constructing this story in your head about who the patient is and what they're bringing with them into this fictional consultation, but they're bringing this whole kind of uh, history with them. I don't think that's a very common approach from a lot of writers. I, I, I could be wrong. Is this something that comes from having been a pharmacist or is this something that was especially kind of widespread in the role that you're talking about? And third question, all in the same topic here, how can writers who are not yet doing that begin that practice of really thinking about a patient case as a whole person? Because I read patient cases, I'm going to call out the New England Journal of Medicine here, they do fantastic patient cases. And of course, it's in a different environment, it's text, it's not online, but they're still very They're crammed with fantastic clinical information, but they're still very flat and two-dimensional in terms of the patient case itself. So I threw a lot of questions at you there. Feel free to (laughs) make of that what you will. Yeah, so I'll I'll throw a lot of answers back and we'll see if we can (laughs) in the long game. So I think, you know, where I worked, the group that I worked with, there were, we all kind of believed in, in the power of the narrative. And I always go back to, you know, you're driving down the road, you're listening to a story. It's about a person, right? You reach your destination. You don't want to get out of your car because you want to hear that person's story. That's what makes you stay. And I think clinicians can learn any sort of way. But if we can draw them in and make them care about the patient and how it ends for the patient, they're more likely to finish that whole case And they're more likely to remember what they learned in that case. And it's more likely to be enjoyable because we as humans, we want that connection, even in our education. So I think that, that, you know, the power of the narrative was something that was just, it was just kind of taught to us. And and I do think that there's a, a lot of utility in that. And that my old manager always told me about this article in New England Journal of Medicine of like, I think the title was The Name of the Dog. And it was about teaching med students, you know, to remember to ask something personal. What was the name of the dog the next time you see that patient? You know, to make that connection with patients. Clinicians are being educated to do that as well. So we're just reinforcing that by providing a patient case with both the meat that they need to understand clinically, but also with that, that human part that's important and makes it stick. And you're also reinforcing that human element in the the patient interviews that you talked about. So what kind of 
I think this might be another area that is potentially challenging for a lot of writers, particularly if they don't necessarily have a clinical background, is what kind of things do they need to be thinking about if they're being tasked to craft a script for uh, a patient interview or a, 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 an interact, you know, a patient provider consultation? Yeah. And I mean, luckily, like I said, most of us have been patients before. So, I mean, you know, there's that opening. Uh, most doctors aren't going to spend five minutes having a conversation with you before getting into the medical reason you're there because they only have 12 to 15 minutes with a patient, right? So I think kind of keeping that initial rapport brief, but trying to make a connection, like in our fictional cases, are we going to say this clinician has seen this patient before? If so, we might start off with, oh, you know, Ms. Smith, it's good to see you again. You know, last time you were here, this. Or are we going to say, you know, Ms. Smith, Dr. XYZ told me about your case. You know, I'm here today to talk to you a little bit more. I think kind of setting that sort of stage before you jump right into it. And then I think, you know, just what brings you in today? And then the answer to that, the writer will kind of take what they learned from the background information. You know, if it's a disease state with top three symptoms and we're supposed to be educating on disease awareness or diagnosis awareness, that patient will probably come with one of those top three symptoms. If you're doing a case on a rare disease, that's going to look different, right? Because it's not going to be, you're not going to get to the answer in that first question. You're going to have to ask a lot more. So it's, it's not scripted for lack of a better word of always XYZ because it matters a lot on the disease state and what the background information kind of told you about what the symptoms are, what the prevalence is, all of that that kind of goes into to kind of uh, narrow that path of questions. And talking of questions, writers obviously need to ask a lot of questions at the beginning of developing a case to get into those kind of nuances that you're talking about, particularly in terms of history and timing. Has the patient been seen before? Is there an existing relationship between this patient and the, the clinician persona that the learner is adopting for the purpose of the learning experience itself? Are there other elements of craft that you see as being important in developing patient cases that we, you know, that we haven't really touched on? You know, I think, I think we've, we've touched on them, on them separately. I think the most important thing is just realizing that there's kind of multiple aspects, but if it's disjointed, if, if you don't think of the medicine while you're writing the patient, and if you don't think of the patient while you're writing the clinical part, it's going to come off disjointed. So really, it, it's funny as I'm saying this, because we always said, you know, when you had to write a patient case, those were our busy days, because we would spend 12 to 14 hours morning to night writing that case. Because when it's all in your head, you just have to get it out at one time, right? Because if you, if you break it down into different, you know, segments, or you separate out the script from the history of present illness, to me, it just feels disjointed. It doesn't feel like a patient case. So interestingly, I'm reflecting now, perhaps that's why we always just had to kind of get it all out in one day, because that was the best way to kind of not lose the interconnectedness of all the points we were trying to get across. And it definitely aligns with that idea of kind of narrative arc and the patient case, in inverted commas, as a, as a whole person. And just to clarify, when you're talking about script, 
you're actually talking about that moment of interaction between the patient and the clinician. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Yep. The clinician asking and or and the patient responding. Or at times, you know, it, it's more than that. The the clinician asking and the patient and their loved one who they brought to this difficult appointment. Or a clinician asking and a nurse responding because if you have a patient in the ICU on a ventilator, because that's what your patient case is, they're not going to be responding. So kind of there's it's there's all sorts of different cases and all sorts of different scripts that you can kind of select again, just depending on the disease state and what's reasonable, but that also makes it really interesting. Mm-hmm. And for translating, like not everybody gets the opportunity to write patient cases for an online environment. What about, what part of what you've been talking about kind of translates to, you know, a textual environment? Because the majority of cases that a lot of writers are tasked with writing are you know, they're for text, they're embedded within some other kind of, uh, you know, education activity, or they're, they're, they're part of another, a larger kind of education activity. Are there things that you would encourage writers to think about when they're writing for text versus writing for an online environment? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't write for text only, but in order to write for the online environment, you have to write it in text. So I do think that there is kind of a lot of overlap. It's just the final product never becomes a a visual. I think if you're writing for text, of course, maybe you need to be more aware of, you know, of length of when you're in front of a screen and clicking through something that looks like a medical record, it's very different than being presented with, you know, a 20,000 word scrolling text document. So there probably needs to be some more brevity and perhaps leave out, you know, I had the flexibility to include a lot of wrong things, teachable moments that may be a little bit harder to do working under a word count. But I do think that there are quite a few things that translate that are very similar between doing it for an online environment and doing it um, just a word text-based kind of format. And that was the thing I was going to ask you was about including misinformation. How does misinformation work as a teachable moment in the context of a patient case? Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about, so heart failure, for instance, there's different stages of classifications of heart failure. So a clinician may be able to easily see, well, this this is a heart failure patient, but they may not be as familiar or strong on the nuances between what makes someone class two versus class three heart failure. So what we would be able to do is if that clinician said this patient has heart failure, you know, everyone wants to be right. So we would say, that's right. But can you be more specific? And that's basically exactly what my medical writing would look like if a clinician selected that. So that's where it's kind of different than the medical writing we're used to doing. So then we would also have an option if if they selected stage two to say, you know, great job selecting a stage of heart failure. However, these are the reasons why this patient is not stage two. So then we're teaching them what stage two looks like and prompting them to try for something else. So it's a really great way to help them kind of work themselves to the correct answer in a way that hopefully they can remember those breadcrumbs and next time be able to come to the you know appropriate diagnosis first. For somebody who's not a clinician, obviously you have a clinical background. Do you think that mindset of, you know, thinking in teachable moments and thinking about, you know, as in the example you shared, 
you know, great choice, but this is why that's not quite correct. Is that a challenging mindset for non-clinicians to get into? You know, I think there's lots of resources out there for adult learning principles. So I think it's something that's definitely doable. And and we have some script writers who who didn't come from a medical background and did a fantastic job. So I really, I don't think that that, yes, there's another level of uh, learning that a non-clinician writer would need, but it's absolutely doable. And if I imagine many of your listeners have read up on adult learning principles, but if not, I mean, that's an extremely helpful place to start just to learn how we as adults learn after school will help you in your craft a lot. And maybe a place to end is any resources you can share for medical writers who are early or, you know, kind of just starting off writing cases and thinking about patient cases. What have you found helpful? Well, you know, Google's always helpful, right? I mean, you'd be surprised how many patients <laughs> cases there are out there. And there's nothing wrong with going and searching a bunch of them and kind of picking and choosing what you like about each of them. I find myself, I am not a creative person. I do well after seeing someone else do it. So the, the, my advice and what worked for me would just be to, you know, go out there, consume as much content as you can. That's similar to what you're trying to produce. Let that kind of simmer down. And then, you know, take a day or a day, a day later and then come back and kind of do it yourself so you can see what really worked from those that you looked at and kind of create your own way of doing it. Consume, digest. I don't want to say regurgitate, but, you know, some <laughs> other metaphor for getting out what you've just consumed and digested, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yes. <laughs> Alison Arman, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom about developing patient cases with listeners of Right Medicine. Thank you so much, Alex. I had a wonderful time. If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.